Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Pitchside with Toby Reynolds, a Sports Gazette podcast, where each episode we take a deep dive into a new sporting topic with a new guest. I'm your host, Toby, and this week I'll be joined by Andy Nolan to discuss the commercial side of international rugby and the future growth of the game. Andy runs the TikTok page Rugby Noors, where he discusses rugby news, talking points and match recaps to his 40,000 followers. Throughout this episode, we look at the exciting start to this year's Six Nations, how the Netflix documentary might help grow the game and the likely introduction of paywalls into international rugby within the UK and Ireland, as well as what first led him into TikTok. I'm now joined by Andy. How how are you, mate? I'm doing well, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Yeah, gonna basically be talking a little bit about the the future of of rugby. And I mean, the best place to start right now is the Six Nations. We're two weeks into what has been a really really good start to the competition. It's probably been the closest ever um, early phase. I mean, Italy have looked decent, which has been uh, is a is obviously been an upward trend of, of recent. What have you made of the the first two weeks? I think it's an interesting one. I don't think anybody expected. Uh, the result in Marseille on on the opening night. And I think that's kind of like, that's really thrown a lot of the predictions out the window. Um, On my side, I thought France were going to win it. I thought they might win a slam just because of the fixtures they had, but they're missing DuPont so badly. And they just seem, it's so strange because their club sides are going so well. I can't quite work it out. Um, I would have thought that even without DuPont, they'd be able to to put up better performances than that. But for whatever reason, they're, they're struggling. Ireland looking fantastic, Nick. They just look they're right at the top of their bounce. And, you know, if, with the players they've added, they might even go higher. Uh, and then you've got Scotland, who I think after the World Cup, if I was in like a decision-making role in, in Scottish rugby, I'd be sort of scratching my head about where we go next because it's the best group they've ever had. It's another disastrous World Cup where, I mean, they did also get shafted by the draw, right? So it's not just their fault, but that's happened two World Cups in a row now. And you have to start asking yourself, well, how do we, how do we move on from here? What comes next? And then Wales and England, I mean, Wales is a full-scale rebuild. Doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of pressure internally. Nobody really expected much, and the players are kind of making the most of it. And then with England, it's it's bizarre because it's kind of a rebuild. There's a lot of new players, but tactically, like, they just... I, I thought they showed a little bit against Italy that made me think, oh, maybe, maybe they really are serious about changing the way they play. And then in the Wales game, you know, as soon as they get under pressure, they go back to what they know, and you just think, is this... When you look at the way the other top teams play, are they ever going to get to the level of, say, South Africa or New Zealand or Ireland um, playing the way they do? And I'm not sure. Um, but I think the, the tournament itself, like the games have been really, obviously, except the Italy games, have been really intense and really close. Um, yeah, I think it's been a brilliant start. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to see, like, Scotland England's going to be massive next weekend. That's a real chance for both of those teams to kind of, for Scotland to lay down a marker and say, like, the France day was a bad day. For England to say, we really are coming we really are coming on and we're really improving. And yeah, France have a chance to get their mojo back against the Italians. And then it's going to be really interesting to see how Ireland cope with 
like how attritional and and hardworking Wales are because I think that's a real challenge. But I don't think Wales have enough when they actually get the ball uh, to really do any damage. But we'll see. Yeah, it will hopefully be a, another exciting few weeks to to round off the tournament. I think Italy are quite an interesting one. They they've obviously finished well last had the wooden spoon for almost all of the the tournament since they joined in 2000 I think 22 wooden spoons I think they, they've won um which is absolutely mental it's crazy they definitely look the best right now that they've they've ever looked I mean they beat Wales two years ago and they're probably in quite a good position to to beat them again this year what do you make of of uh of the sort of side and, and how how much they've improved in the last sort of four or five years I mean, it's great to see. I, I do think, like, I'm going to be a bit of a party pooper here. I think there's a lot of people equate the fact that they throw the ball around more with having gotten a lot better. And I don't know if that's true. Like, they throw the ball around more. They're definitely more exciting to watch. Italy games used to be an absolute dirge to watch because they just try and spoil and make it as hard as they possibly could. And in all honesty, I think you probably have a better chance winning matches that way. But I know players don't want to do that. <laughs> so at least now they're trying to inject some life into Italian rugby. They play a much better brand. They have great moments. They're really exciting to watch at times, but they're so loose and the, the concentration and fitness seems to be a much bigger issue for them than it is for everybody else. Like, And, you know, it used to be that they never had the ball. They have quite a lot of the ball now, so they don't even have that excuse. I think a lot of it is like the psychological damage. <laughs> I, went to a, I went to a school where we played rugby and we never won. And so I know that feeling of getting ready to play and already you're beaten, you know, like, you know, the other team are better than you and you're going to lose. And I know it's professional level. I know they're elite sportsmen, but losing almost every game for 20 years has to have that sort of an impact on you mentally as well. And I just think, I don't know whether it's that they need to have like a complete clear out, um, start picking all young players and try and build that culture up again. Cause I don't know how you teach a bunch of lads who've lost every game for how long have they been in six nations, 30 years or something. Since 2000s was when... Oh, uh, yeah, 20 years. Yeah, and um, I don't know how you teach them to go beyond themselves and to have that self-belief when it's never really happened before. And, and you know, when they beat Wales a couple of years ago, it was amazing. I was in the airport with my missus. We were watching on, on our phone. It, it was incredible. Like, I felt like I was there. It was that intense. But uh, I don't think we'll see that this year. I just think Wales are too tough. Um, and they're not trying anything... <laughs> They're not trying anything overly complicated. And I think that is probably enough to get you over the line against the Italians at the moment. Yeah, you'd assume so. I mean, I think the the point about picking the young kids could be an interesting one because they won the, or they've done really well with an under-19 side over the last few years. And you've seen a lot of them come come in and, and start playing for the for the full side now. So yeah, maybe if they can rotate out and, and filter in nicely, that could, could be quite a good way. But then I guess also you do need some guys who have played international and are international calibre. So it's finding that balance, isn't it? It's difficult. It is difficult. And like, I mean, I wouldn't want that job, you know, like I think Casada has, he has a serious job on because the Crowley era for Italy started so brightly. Everyone got really excited. And then the World Cup was just a disaster. Uh, you know, it wasn't just that they got hammered by New Zealand and France. It was like, particularly against the All Blacks, that they broke mentally. Like you could see the point in the game where they all just kind of switched off and they were like, I, I just want to go home. <laughs> I just don't want to be playing in this game anymore. Um and so you've got to come in, you've got to pick up the pieces from that. You've got to try and keep the good things, which like, obviously they have some great players. Like the Menoncello at 12 looks like a really, really good player. Um, and they've got some good players in the forwards as well. I can't remember the seven, uh, starts with a Z, but I've, his name's escaping me at the moment. But um, yeah, they've got good young players. And like you say, in the 20s, they've got some really good players. Like they really pushed Ireland um, a couple of weeks ago in the under 20s. 
Uh, I think they only lost by a couple of points in the end. They could have gone for a drop goal and they didn't. Um, so it was an Ireland, uh, you know, Ireland had shaken it up a bit. It wasn't their full first team. But to think of like an Italian under 20 side going to, I think Ireland have the best production line in Europe. So at age group level, probably the best team in Europe. And going there and almost coming away with something for Italy, that's huge. So they just need to get more of those guys into, into professional club rugby. They just need, I think they need someone though to like catch fire and go and play for a big French team, you know, kind of like what happened with Capuzzo. Uh, but I think they need someone who's maybe a bit more, uh, who, who can exert more influence on a game, right? Capuzzo's a finisher. He has great moments, but he's not going to control the game. He's not going to take you through from start to finish. So I think maybe they need a 10, um, maybe a nine that they can kind of play off. And uh, yeah, although, I mean, I'm saying that and I'm describing Garbisi, like they have that and it hasn't been enough. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to be on the Italian um, Rugby Federation board because I don't know how you solve it because everyone else is getting better too every year. So you've got to get better, what, five or six times faster than everyone else? It's impossible. No, it's, it's a big challenge. I mean, there was a lot of talk a few years ago about Georgia coming into to the Six Nations, maybe replacing Italy or being promotional relegation. Do you think that that might be a good idea to try and really push Italy to try and not finish bottom every year because they will just fall out and lose huge amounts of money if they don't play in the Six Nations? Yeah, I think for that to actually happen in the Six Nations is a non-starter because I think all six federations have like a veto vote for changes and the Italians are obviously never going to go for that. And I know the the VCs who bought into the Six Nations um, they're very interested in protecting the IP and letting more teams in is going to dilute that. That's not going to happen. But with the new World League and the new setup there, being World Rugby, you know, it's going to take them 10 years to make it work. But the plan is eventually to have those two uh, divisions. Um, so you could have a team like Georgia who've got to be on the edge. You could have a team like Georgia coming up and down, playing some of the big teams sometimes, you know, starting to get that starting to get a bit more like accustomed to playing those those big sides and then hopefully getting more games against the lower tier sides but the, every time every time they announce a change it's clear what they want to do is mostly protect the interests of the big nations uh, who already have quite a lot of skin in the game and on the one hand you feel terrible for the tier 2 nations and then on the other hand like there's a business reality to this right even the big nations it's like it's like this rugby. Like if, if a few things go wrong, if we have another COVID year or whatever, some of those uh, some of those unions could go out of business. So I understand why they're so protectionist about it, but it just feels like everyone at the highest levels of rugby is just waiting for Saudi money or American money or whatever money they can court to come in, and then they can start making some some bigger gambles. But until that, I just think they're going to be they're going to play it completely safe. I mean, the the Netflix documentary is obviously one step they've tried to to take to to bring in some more money and try and grow the game where possible. I mean, it's obviously works massively well in in Formula One. They've got golf and tennis have have the same documentaries. The All or Nothing stuff on Amazon Prime. Similarly, first of all, what did you make of the uh, the Netflix documentary? Did did you enjoy it? Did you think it was revolutionary, like a lot of people thought it could be? Uh, I didn't know what to make of it. You know, it. I watched it before the Six Nations started, and it like got me right in the mood. Um, it was. I, I, there were bits I liked and bits I didn't. I love that they focused on um, the player personalities. Um, I think that came at the expense of like, one of the things I loved about Drive to Survive, I watched that, I wasn't a Formula One fan beforehand. They spent 10 minutes at the beginning just really beating the idea into you that there are 20 seats in Formula One and that's it. And so every it doesn't matter if you're the worst guy on the grid, you still have one of the, the top 20 seats. And so it made everything matter. 
in the documentary after that. And what I was disappointed in the Six Nations one, there was no framing at all. They didn't explain how the game worked. They didn't even explain how point scoring worked. They they dived right into it. They kind of they kind of ignored <laughs> the complexity of rugby and the rules in general. Um, and they just focused on the people, which was amazing. I didn't know Sebastian Negri had that backstory. And it was fantastic to listen to that. And also I didn't even I didn't know he nearly died in that game against England. Like it was it was amazing to learn that stuff and to see the kind of little bond between him and Genge that happened after that and all those, all that stuff was brilliant. Um, but you know, a lot of a lot of rugby pundits talk about you players could do that without Netflix. Like if if the unions were a bit more relaxed about what players shared and how players were on social media, stuff like that, we could see those moments. We don't need a Netflix documentary crew to come in. So when I finished watching it, I was just left wondering, like, who is this for? Like, it didn't feel like it was for new fans. It certainly wasn't for people like me who followed the Six Nations religiously because I remembered everything that happened. They didn't really <laughs> go into much depth. Um, but as like a as a showreel for the players and what personality could do in rugby, I thought it was brilliant. So a bit of a mixed bag, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I I thought that well, I, I found I same as you, I got into F one through um through Drive Survive and, and found that really interesting. And but as I know more and more about Drive Survive, I found each series has been less interesting to me. And I feel like, yeah, sim- similar with rugby, I I knew what happened last year. I was I watched all the games. Um, whereas the player wise found I found it really interesting. Yeah, finding all the new guys out. You know, you found a lot more about Ellis Genge, who I kind of yeah knew what of and and obviously seen him play for England for a lot. But yeah, you kind of find these different stories and hit obviously almost didn't ever play rugby, which would have been crazy to think that that he yeah. had probably a few choices away from from not playing for his country. Do you think that maybe they might learn if they do it again next year that they need to maybe either aim at more sort of new entrants and, and new fans or, or even go really deep into it and try and draw out some some interesting stuff for, for people who have watched a lot more of rugby? Yeah, I wonder, because I always think as well, what seems, when you see the end product, you think everything's a creative decision. But like we all know, they had tons of trouble behind the scenes. Like some of the uh, teams didn't want them in in any intimate moments. Like I think they managed to upset Ireland and Wales uh, management team and they weren't allowed in the dressing rooms and stuff like that. So you don't know how much of it was just a lack of cooperation. So they kind of had to do their best to build the story around it. Um, I would hope, but again, like what I said from before was they should have just focused on Italy for the first season. The first season should have just been the story of Italy losing every game but how much effort and passion and heart goes in. Let's get to know a bunch of the players. Let's really embed with them because they've got the most to gain, right? They've got nothing to lose from doing a documentary. Just like they did in Drive to Survive, they only worked with the the lower end teams to begin with. Um, and then I think the the higher end teams would have seen the value of it and maybe would have been more open to it. But I think, yeah, what we got for whatever reason was ultimately just a bit um, surface level and... With the with the exception of the players who kind of opened up, there wasn't really there wasn't really loads in there. Um, but you know, if season two we get access to more players and more people tell their story, overall that's probably a positive. So yeah, sort of remains to be seen. No, definitely. I mean, I I think you're right there in saying that that actually if they focused on Italy, because Italy seemed to give them almost everything they wanted, whereas yeah, Warren, yeah, yeah. Warren Gatland and and the the Irish team were were definitely a lot more closed off, and and you kind of saw what you probably could have seen on social media, like a few training montages, a few things here and there. And actually, same as Mercedes, Red Bull and um, and Ferrari in, in Drive Survive, 
you didn't really see them in the first series or second series. Then you got a race with them. And now you're basically following just those big teams because <laughs> that's where all the money is. That's where the interest is. And yeah, I mean, if, if they'd focused on Italy a lot more and almost made it an Italian documentary, that could have maybe been a way to, to move it forward, I guess. I think so. I just can't imagine people wouldn't. It, I don't think you need to have watched the sport to fall in love with a bunch of guys who give absolutely everything to never win. Like, I think that level of dedication, and it works really nicely as a metaphor for rugby, because, you know, it, you don't, like, people who make it as professional rugby stars, you don't get, like, footballer money. You don't get, I never have to work again money. You completely destroy your body over the course of a career, all for other people's entertainment. And at the end of it, you're kind of just left with the stories and the memories, but you're not, you're not a superstar, you know? Um, and so on a, like a, a small level, that's what those Italian guys do every single year. <laughs> like they throw it all on the line. They don't win a game, but they don't stop working. And I think that's about as inspirational as it can get. Uh, and I think that would have worked really well, but sure. What do I know? I, I don't work for Netflix, so. <laughs> Maybe they'll they'll change it up next year and, and they might do something completely different and it might be better because of it. And and I mean, I guess that's that's the hope for for any rugby fan on a, on a slightly different note, there's been a lot of talk about paywalls coming into, into rugby. I mean, at the moment, ITV and BBC show everything in, uh, in England and the UK, and it's completely free to watch the whole six nations, all of the world cup uh, and internationals and stuff as well. Whereas the rugby world cup, there was a lot of talk um, about everything going behind a paywall for that. The six nations now have kind of announced it. What do you make of, of the fact that, that maybe in five years time, it might be impossible to watch any rugby without paying for it all. Yeah, I think that's a, possible, a probability. Like, I think that's very likely. Um, what I actually learned during the World Cup, I made a couple of videos about paywalls and stuff. And what I learned is that we are in the UK and Ireland insanely lucky because we get it on free-to-air. Nobody else gets it on free-to-air. The Africans have to pay for it. New Zealand's have to pay for it. Uh, Australians have to pay for it. So we're kind of the last holdout of free-to-air rugby. And you know, the the trade off is the the trade off's pretty simple, right? If you let the big money in, you go behind a paywall, you get more money to market, you get more money for the clubs. The financial health of the game is better. Uh, it doesn't really seem to have impacted attendances in the Premiership, like if the Rugby Premiership. The attendances are pretty strong this year um, after a little dip after the World Cup, but the fan experience is worse. You have to pay to see it so it means that less people are going to seek it out you're going to get less numbers tuning in but the numbers you get are way more valuable to the sport and rugby has faced the economic reality of, of being a professional sport a couple of times over the last few years and so for me like it's it's a simple decision they have to because if they keep trying to keep if they keep if they leave everything on free to air if they keep trying to make it accessible to people that's really noble but if you don't make enough money from it, you can't continue as a sport. Like it's an existential thing. So yeah, it's a shame. And I think the the idea that like by having it on free to air, you get more kids interested, you get more kids involved. I think that's been proven incorrect because bec I think mostly because of the concussion stuff and, and all the stuff about how unsafe rugby is. Um, grassroots kids rugby, I understand is like flatlining and there's way less kids playing. They're finding it really, really difficult to uh, keep clubs open. And it's been free to air this whole time in international rugby. And it hasn't changed that. So I think if you look at the examples um, that are sort of, uh, that are worth looking at, like cricket, I think is a good one, right? They used to have everything on free to air. They went behind Sky Sports. Way less people watch cricket. But cricket's killing it. Like there's more money in it. It's a much bigger juggernaut. Commercially, it makes much more sense. So I think rugby probably needs to, 
to look at doing something like that. And it's it's not great for fans, but I really think it's as simple as like, do you want sport to continue? And if you do, then it's going to start costing us some money. The one thing I, I do hope that, that when it happens is that all of the rugby goes onto one channel. The thing that infuriates me, particularly with football and a little bit with cricket, but cricket actually does well, where Sky basically own all of the England rights. Yeah. With football, it infuriates me when you have to have six different <laughs> packages to watch one weekend of football. They'll be showing some on Sky, some on Prime, some on BT. The BBC might get some, some EFL stuff, ITV might get some, and, and you're having to pay sort of hundreds of pounds just to watch a few games of football, which doesn't really seem the right way. And, and if the Six Nations is on BT and the Premiership's on BT and maybe the World Cup's on BT, um, although I think they will likely keep a lot of the World Cup on, on free-to-air because sim- same with football, a lot of the cricket, particularly the, world, the finals as well, have to be on free-to-air, I think. Yeah. That's the thing. Um, and so, yeah, as long as I think there's one subscription you pay and you get everything with it, I think that that might be the, the best option. I think the ideal scenario for rugby, because uh, Amazon are clearly dipping their toe, right? They've done the automations. Like, they've clearly been thinking about it. I think the ideal scenario is that it ends up on Prime because it's it's not an expensive subscription. Like, I think the biggest disaster is if it goes to TNT or whatever, because, you know, the cost of that is just mad. <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense. Although I suppose if it's something like the Six Nations, you, you'd probably pay for the tournament. Maybe it wouldn't be as bad. You wouldn't have to have it year round. But yeah, I think Prime... Get the Six Nations on there. The coverage, the level of coverage they've done before, I thought was quite good. Um, and yeah, if it has to be behind a paywall, let it be an affordable one. Um, and I think Amazon do a pretty good job, so I reckon that's that's probably where the people running the Six Nations. That's probably where their heads at. I think. I think the one thing you do gain as well from having on a pay behind a paywall is I think the coverage itself would be a lot better. I mean, I've noticed it in cricket. Some of the analysis you get is unbelievably good, whereas. Mm particularly the the world cup i found a lot of the the coverage from some of the pundits wasn't particularly insightful <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> do you know who i feel for poor old flatman david flatman just holding it up for everybody like his analysis is brilliant and then some of the guys they get in alongside him it's it's wild <laughs> definitely i mean it's that's i guess the one hope is that, that maybe if they can they can move it over they might have a bit more to invest in it they'll be able to possibly train people up as well because even with the cricket, you, you've no, I've noticed that some of the guys about 10 years ago were, were fine. They were okay commentators. But just because they've done it full time effectively now, because that's all they do, they've naturally got a lot better at it. And whereas a lot of these pundits are just dipping in for Six Nations, just dipping in for an Autumn International, just yeah. up, and are having to try and do completely different things the rest of the year effectively. And you're not going to get anywhere near as good. Whereas Michael Atherton, who is arguably one of the best commentators in, in all sports is just there following England cricket, following test cricket and going and commentating on absolutely everything and, and therefore has owned his skills into to being a very good commentator. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely see the argument, right? Like I'd love Amazon assembling a dream team, whoever, whoever you like on comms, there's a lot of good commentators, but on analysis, just get Austin Healy and Flatman in the same room and I'll just listen to it all day. The world cup was very, very poor for the Northern Hemisphere. England were the only team to make it through to the semi-final. And even that was a little bit touch and go with the, the course <laughs> of EG. Um, obviously, you kind of have to look back at, at Ireland and, and France playing effectively a semi-final in the quarters in what were definitely the, the two biggest games of, of the tournament other than maybe the final. Yeah. Do you think that, that there's maybe something the Northern Hemisphere could be looking at? Because it seem, seemingly happens every year now or, or very often that the, Nor- the Northern Hemisphere sides never seem to quite peak yeah, I mean, I, 
I'm of the view that this time it was different. Like, France lost by point or whatever. Ireland lost by, what, two points? I, I can't remember the margin. I've tried to block that evening out of my head completely. I was there. It was horrible. Um, but it wasn't a case of, like, being outclassed. Um, like, in the France-South Africa game, South Africa, one of their USPs is, because of the 6-2, because of the nature of the, the forwards that they have on the bench, like, they can go bigger for longer in games. That's how they win matches. That's their game plan. France's game plan usually involves, like, first 20 minutes, we're going to absolutely blitz them. We're just going to try and get so far ahead that we can just manage the scoreboard from there. And that nearly worked. But the South African game plan was just that little bit better, and they and they pipped them, right? For Ireland New Zealand, I think New Zealand, uh, they capitalised on a, a couple of things that other teams weren't doing. Um, there was a lot of talk after we smashed Scotland in the groups. Why didn't they kick it in behind? Why did they just run it? Uh, play after play why why not kind of take that Ireland rush defense out of the equation get them turned and make them panic and that's exactly what happened in the New Zealand game Bowden Barrett was amazing he's putting these little short kicks in behind and it got Ireland totally bamboozled and then New Zealand were able to run some really nice first phase moves and yeah it all went pear-shaped from there but you know Ireland still went toe-to-toe and but for Jordy Barrett's knee getting under the ball we'd have been in a semi-final so other years I definitely think there's been this thing where the Northern Hemisphere just seemed to have this edge. Like they seem to handle knockout rugby better. They seem to be cooler in the moment, but I, I still feel like this world cup was a little bit of a turning point because they ran them so close. And both of those games really could have gone either way. A couple of refereeing decisions, a couple of big moments. Um, and, you know, it was a shame that it was in the quarters because then the semis were, didn't feel as, I mean, the England South Africa game was great. I loved that. But the New Zealand Argentina game was such a, such a letdown. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think I think the Northern Hemisphere is catching up. I do. I think it's mostly because the Kiwis have been exporting coaches for so long that like we we know all of their tricks now. <laughs> and you know, it's harder and harder to invent new stuff that breaks rugby open the way the New Zealanders used to do. Um, and South Africa have been so clever with the way that they bring the right type of player through, um, and the way that they've created a completely different game plan, a completely different outlook on it from everybody else. Uh, but I think Ireland are starting to do something similar. Like Ireland play in a way that nobody else in the world plays. Um, I think it's it's difficult to maintain in knockout rugby because continuity is such a big part of it. And you're going to get injuries and stuff like that. But, you know, they believe in what they're doing. They're sticking to it. Uh, and I thought France had sort of a similar thing, but I think it turns out they just have DuPont. But <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see if they can turn it around in the rest of the Six Nations. But I'm really excited for their World Cup in four years' time. And I think, for me, if there's one thing that the Northern Hemisphere can learn from the Southern Hemisphere. I think it's, don't take, if you're a team that really has World Cup ambitions, you can't take the Six Nations super seriously for four years. Like you have to blood new players. You have to try new guys out. You have to put yourselves in situations that you may find yourself in come a World Cup. Um, and I hope Ireland will do that. You know, there's not many, there's not many places in that squad where they don't have depth now. I think what happens against Wales is going to be really interesting because Keenan might be out and he's unbelievable at 15. He's our, our best option there by a mile, but we don't have a number two. We need to find someone who can back him up if he gets injured in the tournament. So, sorry, I've, got, I've gone on for ages, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I think the gap's closing, but I'd love to see Northern Hemisphere teams take that four-year cycle view rather than just sacrificing that for short-termism and trying to do as well as they can in the Six Nations by picking tried and tested players. I think, interestingly, a lot of the the team, the Northern Hemisphere teams who have done that are probably the guys who have been coached by Southern Hemisphere people. I mean, Eddie Jones 
has been very good at that, I thought, for, for England. Warren Gatlin for Wales in particular. The way he always steps up at a, at a World Cup. You look back at four years ago or five years ago now to, to 2019, and he, I think, if, if he managed to beat that South African side, I think there was every chance they go on to win the, the World Cup. Oh, yeah. And they weren't far off. They really weren't far off. And I mean, this, like at, at the last World Cup, if I was one of those senior Welsh players who was who retired after the tournament, I don't know how they're ever going to get over that World Cup because they had that game completely sewn up against Argentina. Completely sewn up. Um, I don't know how they ended up losing it. And the type of team they are, the further they go in the tournament, you just think, God, maybe, like, finally, maybe they're going to do it. But talk about like a nation that punches above its weight. It's amazing how good they are. Absolutely, yeah. Now is the guess the test for, for Wales. Can they do it over the next four years? It's another massive rebuild, which actually Warren Gatlin is, is very good at. So there's an opportunity there. And I think they've performed a lot better than people maybe would have thought of. You know, really, really tight game against um, against England. Well, yet again, 10 minutes away, a kick away from from managing it. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's something they can learn over the next four years, I guess. Do you, do you think that they have an opportunity with so many young guys coming through that they might, in four years' time, have a really good opportunity? Or is it almost more an eight-year plan they've probably got now no i think like first of all like timelines in rugby are insane to me because you say four years and it feels like a long time that's like 40 matches it's really not that long but yeah i i think in four years time they'll be a threat they've got enough good young players they've got plenty of games to play in between now and then i guess the thing that's always characterized the really good welsh teams is that they have two or three superstars and then everyone else kind of knows their job one of the hallmarks of the Gatlin team is that like your job isn't very complicated. You know, it's, it's very simple, the stuff that he has to communicate to the players and all that he asks is, you know, a thousand percent commitment that you're as fit as they come. They always look so fit coming into tournament rugby. One of the fittest teams out there. They, they must push themselves through pretty crazy sessions in advance of a tournament. So yeah, I think in four years time, they'll be great. The, the question is, you know, Lloyd and Costello look like the options at 10 going into that next four years. Is, is one of them going to like grab the jersey, make it their own? Because the way that they've played historically, they've always hung their hat on like a really talented 10. Like I know a lot of people didn't like Dan Bigger, but he was a serious player, particularly for Wales. He seemed to really turn it on. So the big question mark for me would be, can they find that guy to direct the game? Because, you know, when you look at the, the options they have uh, in the back row or they've got some great wingers, really good young players like Winnet coming through, if I was a Welsh fan, I'd be really cautiously optimistic about the next World Cup. But there'll definitely be some hurt between now and then. Definitely. Yeah. My my prediction for, for the Six Nations is that Italy will beat Wales, but Wales will finish above them in the group stages just by bonus points, just by somehow <laughs> managing it. And Italy won't win anything. They'll finish on four or five points. <laughs> and Wales will somehow clinch it with a few tight games and a few four-try bonus points. So, God, could you imagine? <laughs> That would be the most Italian thing, I feel like. <laughs> it would be. It would be. But I think I think looking at the way both teams are approaching it this season, I think it'll be like when they played last year. I think the Italians will have a lot of chances. I think they'll leave a few out there and at the end of the game they'll be like, How did we not win? But I just don't see I just don't see Wales folding. Uh I think the Italians will break before they do. I guess, yeah, we'll have to wait and find out. I mean, I mean, yeah, I thought I thought France were going to win opening night too. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Predictions go out the window, I feel like. when. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of, you, you're most well known for your TikTok content. Started about a year ago now, was it? Just before the World Cup? No, just before the World Cup. World Cup, yeah. yeah. Um, what what got you into, into TikTok and, and sort of putting videos out there about the, the World Cup? 
Uh, I was unemployed. <laughs> that was the main reason. Um, I was job hunting. So I I work in uh, tech in, in kind of creative marketing. And last year, uh, the market wasn't very good. I was job hunting and I was like, I need something to keep myself busy. I knew I was going to be watching every game of the World Cup anyway. So I thought, all right, well, like have a go. I, I'd, I'd always sort of thought I might like to do something like that, you know, um, creating a little video, putting it out there and getting like real-time feedback seems like a really interesting thing to do. So I had a go. Um, I didn't think anybody would watch them. And yeah, it was mad what happened in the World Cup. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I had videos getting like a quarter of a million views and stuff. It was wild. I never, ever thought that would happen. I still can't believe people listen to them, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but it's been super fun. You know, you get to meet like so many people message you. You kind of ha- you end up having like rugby TikTok friends. Like there are people that after every round of games, we we always have little chats and, and share match reports and stuff. And yeah, it's it's been a trip. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do after the World Cup because I got a job uh, and I have way less time now. Because, you know, I was making like during the World Cup, I was making three or four videos a day. But because I didn't have much else to do, uh, I could I could make that work. Like it's it's weird for a little 90 second video how much time and effort you have to put in behind the scenes before you put it up there, if it's going to be good, you know, if it's going to be well-researched, if you're going to focus on the right things, you've got to spend ages pouring over the the stats from games and the, and the stuff on the, the World Cup website and the Six Nations website to try and make sure that what you're saying holds water. Um, it's been really rewarding, but it's, um, it's, it's quite a difficult thing to make work <laughs> um, and to do consistently. But it is amazing. Like it, sometimes at games, you might run into people who watch the channel and, it obviously it makes people happy like people are really happy to meet you so it's it's strange i i honestly thought i'd start making videos i finished the end of the world cup nobody really watch it and then i get on with my life and i do something else but uh yeah it feels like i'm stuck in it now i have to keep going yeah the, the 40,000 yeah. <laughs> people the 40,000 subscribers obviously want to keep going one of the the biggest challenges often and and one of the biggest criticisms for a lot of pundits generally and, and often tiktokers is the the sort of clickbait kind of style where you have to be super positive and super negative. How do you find sort of balancing, balancing that without sort of trying to keep obviously the channel growing and, and get viewers, but also not just saying something for the sake of saying something. Yeah. I, the thing is, I think people are on the, on, even on TikTok, people are crying out for content that doesn't do that. Like the stuff where people do that is always going to perform really, really well because it's polarizing, you know, if you upset half the people and you make half the people really happy, it's twice the engagement. That is always going to work. But, you know, when I do get comments and messages, so many of them are from people saying it's just really nice to hear someone talking about rugby, like without a clear agenda. <laughs> um, and I will say, though, it's easy to upset people. Like during the during the World Cup, uh, I think I made one video where I sort of mentioned that I wanted to see France beat New Zealand in the groups because... Um, I wanted to see a Northern Hemisphere World Cup win, you know? And I had loads of New Zealand fans in the comment being like, ah, oh, the truth comes out. We all knew you were against <laughs> us. And it's like, that's not what I meant. I was, you know, you, you do you do upset people, even if you're trying to go straight down the middle. Um, but my view is like, I look at, because the, there are a couple of other rugby creators that I look at as like an example. I think they do it really well. Like Egg Chasers on YouTube, like that guy's amazing. Um, Squidge, obviously. Uh and neither of them hide the fact that they're, you know, Squidge is a massive Wales fan and the Egg Chaser, what's his name? I think Tim um, is a huge England fan and they don't hide that, but it 
it doesn't mean that they're disparaging about other nations. It doesn't mean that they're talking smack all the time. Like they still take an interest in the other team. So I, I think people appreciate that. Um, so yeah, I always try and make sure that, and, and you know what it is? I love rugby. Like one of the reasons I did the channel is I would be saying all of this stuff to my missus or my parents or whoever would listen anyway. So, <laughs> you know, I'm always going to spend time looking at other teams, trying to figure out, uh, yeah, trying to figure out where the trends are going in the game which coaches are doing the most interesting stuff. Because uh, I think like, yeah, like any true Norse, you know, I was never any good when I played. So <laughs> you have to, you have to find another way to engage with the game. Definitely. And then final, final questions or final point. I want some, some predictions then for, for the, the Six Nations. You've obviously said you thought that France would win that first game. Do you think that Ireland are just going to run away with it now? Or, or has anyone got an opportunity to, to claw it back in? I think uh, it's tricky. I like. I think the odds are now Ireland. Are, the odds are probably Ireland going to do the slap, right? Like the the banana skin that they've got left is England away. Historically, that's a really really difficult game. Looking at the way they're playing now, I think you'd be a very pessimistic Ireland fan if you said you didn't think you could go over there and win. But I do think England will like they'll limit their game against Ireland. I don't think they'll try and play anything super exciting. Um, I just don't see them having made enough progress on that rush defence by the time Ireland come, that they're not going to leave some holes. Because, you know, there are moments where that defence looks awesome and you can see what they're driving at. And then there are moments where it's like Swiss cheese and people are just running through. Like the, the two tries they conceded against Italy were criminal. Like at, at that level, you should not be conceding scores like that. And I just think that means that, just the fact that they're betting that in uh, means that Ireland probably, you have to think, are going to have the edge in that game. Um, but I, you know, England have to come back at some point. Like, they are a huge rugby nation. They've got really talented players. They've maybe got a, a coach who's a bit backwards by the kind of general top level standard at the moment. But I don't know. There's there's something about that game that makes me a bit worried. Um, and yeah, and then my views at the start of the tournament, like I thought England were going to have a better tournament than they are having. I thought. So much feel-good factor. I thought they'd shake the chains off a little bit because it's the second year with the new coach. But, you know, we've seen none of that so far. <laughs> um, so I think I fancied them to go up and beat Scotland at the start of the tournament. I'm not so sure about that now. Again, I just think about Finn Russell and the holes in that England defence. I know that, well, they'll have two Alangi back. So maybe it'll be a bit better. But, yeah, after, after the first weekend, getting Ireland-France so wrong, and getting England's, uh, the kind of tournament England we're going to have so wrong, I have no faith in myself to predict anything <laughs> anymore. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Andy, for coming to the podcast. It's been great hearing all of your insight and having a chat with about the, the future of rugby. Mate, well, thanks for having me on. It's been really fun. Thank you all so much for listening and make sure you head over and follow us on social media. It's pitchside underscore podcast on Instagram and Toby Reynolds 10 underscore on TikTok and Twitter. Make sure you also head over to the Sports Gazette website to read articles from all of our pundits and writers here at the Sports Gazette. Make sure you like the podcast and give it a rating. It really does help. And make sure to join us next time on Pitchside with Toby Reynolds. Podcast Network.